Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Today we are traveling to the Far East. Some 6,300 miles from the UK is the Kingdom of Patani in southern Thailand. Located on the middle of the long east coast of the Malay Peninsula, early modern Patani was in the Malay Sultanate, which means it was ruled by a sultan devoted to Islam. The capital city of the Malay Sultanate was Malacca, around 500 miles south of Patani. Patani was a port city, and thanks to a trade boom in Southeast Asia in the early modern period, the city was growing. In 1511, the Portuguese had captured Malacca, so Patani grew in importance and became a centre of trade in spices and luxury goods for Muslims. Over the course of the 16th century, Patani developed connections with China, Japan, Java and Europe, and its population grew to 40 or 50,000, broadly equivalent to England's second largest city at the time, Norwich. It was during this period of growth, of change, that our story is set. In 1572, following the death of the Sultan Manzur Sayar and more than a decade of ensuing chaos, a new dynasty took the throne in 1584, a dynasty of women. These queens of Batani would rule for over a hundred years. So how did female rule become institutionalized in Batani? Was female royal power successful? Did the queens face significant challenges because of their gender? And why did the dynasty decline? Here to guide us in today's exploration is Professor Stefan Amaral. Stefan Amaral is Professor of Global History at Linus University and the Director of its Centre for Concurrences in Colonial and Postcolonial Studies. Professor Amaral is also the President of the Swedish Historical Association. His research interests include colonialism and decolonisation, political culture and democracy in Southeast Asia, piracy and maritime security in global historical perspective and female political leadership in world history. In particular today, we will be discussing his work, The Blessings and Perils of Female Rule, New Perspectives on the Reigning Queens of Patani, 1584 to 1718. Professor Amaral, thank you so much for joining me to talk about the reigning queens of Patani. I wonder if we can perhaps start with the name of the kingdom. I understand that in recent times, its name and spelling have become somewhat controversial. Could you tell us what this controversy is and how we should say and spell Patani in its historical sense? Yes, absolutely. Well, first, thanks for having me. It's my pleasure to be here. The kingdom is spelled in Malay. It's a Malay kingdom and it's spelled with one T. So it's Patani with one T. And the modern province in Thailand is spelled with two T's. So that is Patani with a double T. 
And I don't speak Thai, I speak a bit of Malay, but as I understand it, the pronunciation is quite different if you pronounce it in Thai. So that means that there's a province that's called Patani, which is part of the old kingdom of Patani or the region of Patani, but it's much smaller than the Sultanate or the kingdom of Patani was. Can you give me a bit of a sense of the monarchy in Patani in the period that we're talking about? So I'm interested in knowing if Patani monarchs were heads of state, they were leaders of religious institutions, if they had advisors and governments, how it worked. When we come in this period, we're talking late 16th century until the early 18th century, Patani is one of several Malay kingdoms or sultanates. Basically, they're quite small. Most of them based on trading. So there's a lot of trading with China, with Japan, with India, and of course with Europe as well. And they are, most of them, like Patani, are Muslim kingdoms. So they're ruled by a sultan, or in the case of Patani, then sultanas. They have their courts, of course, and they have the courtiers. So there's an inner circle of what you would call prominent people of the realm, who would be a handful of people, five to ten people maybe. And then besides them, you would have the Orankayas, who are the merchant aristocrats of these polities, which you have in Patani as well. And many of them own ships and they trade in spices, in cloth, in woods and so on. And how did a dynasty of female monarchs come to the throne in Patani in 1584? Were there particular conditions or factors that made it possible? Was it thought to be aberrant that you'd have women succeeding to the throne? For one thing, what happened in Patani, uh, we don't know all of the details because the sources are quite patchy for this period. But it seems to have been an infighting in the dynasty and several of the members of the royal family, including rulers and the next in line to the throne who were murdered shortly before that. So it seems that finally they decided to have a woman on the throne to restore stability, which it seems worked at least for some time. Then there's also the more long-term explanation. I think there's something to do with, well, for one thing, I think if you look at the gender relations more broadly, most of Southeast Asia and among the Malays, it is comparatively gender equal. There's not so much separation between the genders. So men and women tend to be allowed to associate in daily life more frequently. Seclusion is not practiced. Women have also quite prominent roles in trade, especially in domestic markets and so on. So I think these factors also weigh in. So you would have less of a barrier towards female rule than you would have in, let's say, China or in many Muslim states in the Middle East. That's very interesting, that comparison of how historic Islam was practiced by comparison to some places today is instructive. And you mentioned there the difficulty of sources. Could you Give me a bit of a sense of what sort of sources you might use to find these queens. You divide them into two groups of sources. You look at the textual sources and of course you have archaeological evidence and you can find coins and so on. But you have the indigenous or the Malay sources, which is the most important of these, is the Chronicle of Patani, the Hikayat Patani, which was probably written down somewhere around the turn of the 18th century. So that means that when we are dealing with the late 16th century, these events are more than 100 years old. And of course, that is a problem of reliability. But it is an important source, definitely. And that survives then in transcripts that date from the 19th century. There are a couple of these transcripts that have been found. And then there are the accounts of foreign visitors. So there are a lot of Europeans coming to Patani. They're coming there to trade, most of them. 
First, there are quite a lot of Portuguese in the 16th and early 17th century. And from the beginning of the 17th century, there are also Dutch and English. There are also some Spanish. There's an Austrian traveler who also visits Batani. Then there are also the Chinese. And especially when we get in towards the second half of the 17th century, when the European sources tend to be less frequent, the Chinese sources are comparatively more important. Unfortunately, they are quite brief sources, but they do give some information. How interesting. So in each case, you're dealing with sources that are somewhat distanced. Either you've got somebody who is a foreigner to the region and is trying to interpret what he's probably he sees, or you've got someone writing at a distance through time and trying to make conclusions based on possibly what they want to have happened. I mean, I don't know. You say it's a useful source. I'm not judging it. But that sense of distance is quite interesting because, of course, it shapes what you can know so much. Absolutely. And that's a great difference. If you study Europe in the same period, you will, of course, have a lot of documents and archives from these even quite small polities and duchies and so on. You would still have much more contemporary material from which to build a story. So that means that the whole history of Patani and many of the other Malay sultanas from these times is very patchy and you have to make a lot from very small pieces of information. So it's like working, frankly, on the Anglo-Saxon period here. Although I would say that as somebody who works on the 16th century in England and France, if you're looking at courts, you rely a lot on ambassadorial accounts as well. So again, the opinions of visitors are very important. So as I understand it, there were two separate dynasties of female rulers, the inland and the Calatan, were they distinct families? I'm thinking, you know, Plantagenets and Tudors in England. They probably were. And I mean, the origins of the, the so-called inland dynasty, I mean, the inland dynasty means that they came from the inland. So we don't really know where that dynasty came from. So they are the dynasty with the first four ruling queens until around the mid 17th century. Probably, because this is a bit controversial in the latest research as well. And then Patani goes into decline economically and politically. And then Kelantan becomes a more influential power. So there's actually the royal dynasty from the neighboring sultanate of Kelantan, which is installed on the throne. And were the ruling queens of Patani expected to marry and produce heirs? Or, you know, as Queen Elizabeth I famously declared, were they married to their country? If they didn't have children... How would a succession be determined? It seems quite clear that the first queen, Raja Ijao, who ruled from around 1584 until 1616, she may have been married. She probably was married and then her husband died and she succeeded to the throne. She was then succeeded by her sister, who seems to have been unmarried. And she was then again succeeded by a third sister, who was indeed married <laughs> to the king of Pahang. And then that marriage was either dissolved or the king, her husband, died. And then she returned to Patani and became a ruling queen. She was then succeeded by her daughter, who did marry to the king of Johor. So there seems to have been an idea of the queens being unmarried from the beginning, and then that changed over time. Was there ever any sense that a son or a brother was in contention for the throne? My sense is that, at least in the early part of the 17th century, the queens were seen as conducting policies that were quite open and friendly to trade, and Patani was in a very prosperous period. So, especially the first two queens had the support of these Orankayas, the merchant aristocrats who had much of the influence in the polity. And I was intrigued to learn that those first inland queens in 1584 to the mid-17th century 
were associated with colours, that Raja Ijao means green queen, and then we have the blue queen and the violet and the yellow. What's the significance of the colours? Now, that's very interesting, and we don't really know that. <laughs> For one thing, there's been speculation that the colour green of the first of these queens would be associated with Islam, which I don't believe to be the case because she didn't really base her legitimacy and authority so much on Islam, in contrast to ruling queens of Aceh, for example, which in the later part of the 17th century also had a succession of ruling queens. I think these names, they only appear in the Malay sources, so they don't appear in the European sources. They would generally speak of the queen in different European languages, or they would use the titles that they would have as queens, which could be Prachau, for example, which is the Thai royal title. So these colour names come from the Malay sources, and some have interpreted them as the colours of the rainbow. Some have interpreted them as four cardinal directions in Buddhism, which also are associated with colours. And some have also suggested that they might be associated with certain times of the day. So you have an idea of dividing the day in five different segments, each associated with a colour. So that might be the time of the day that they were born. But frankly, we don't know. How fascinating. And I was struck by your point there that the queens downplayed their claim to legitimacy based on religion, on Islam. And that's such a contrast to the monarchy in Western Europe at the time, which is making that connection between divine right and legitimacy. Why do you think Patani queens did this or didn't do this? I think for one thing, Patani wasn't a very strongly Islamicized country at this time, in contrast to Aceh, for example, which I mentioned in northern parts of Sumatra, which had lots more stronger and longer influence from Islam and where there was a resistance towards female rule from Islamic teachers. So I think that's one thing. And I think the position of female rulers in Islam is contended because there are arguments from the religious point of view against having a woman as a leader. And the political leader is also supposed to be the religious leader. So that also creates a problem of legitimacy. But as far as we can see, these queens, they did not impose strong Islamic laws or they did not promote Islamic scholarship or Islamic teachings. They did not practice seclusion, for example, also in contrast to the ruling queens of Aceh. And yet shortly after Raja Ijao acceded to the throne in 1584, there was an attempted coup, wasn't there? And I understand that some writers have suggested that this was designed to show that her power was derived in Islam. Can you tell me about this and how we could understand this incident? Yeah, this is also a, the main source that we have from this is the Hakayat Patani, this chronicle that was written down more than 100 years later. And apparently there was a coup attempt shortly after she acceded to the throne by her first minister. That would be one of the notables in Patani who would have his own part of the kingdom, which he controlled. So he marched with his army on the queen and attempted to take the throne. And then the Hikayat Patani, it only states really that there was a meeting. She was abandoned. Raja Eja was abandoned by all her generals and, and her ministers. So she was basically alone in the palace receiving this minister who had started the rebellion against her. And she took her scarf, and that was a green scarf, so that might also be an association with her colour, of course. And she threw it to him, upon which he took up this scarf and put it around his head to mark that he recognised the authority of the queen. 
And, you know, what actually happened, we can't know. But, I mean, the symbolic implications, I think, is that there was some sort of division of power because Rajaja was not an absolutist queen in that sense. So she also ruled with the consent of the other notables in Patani. I'm Kate Lister, sex historian and author, and I am the host of Betwixt the Sheets, The History of Sex, Scandal and Society, a new podcast from History Hit. Join me as I root around the topics which have been skipped over in your school history lessons. Everything from the history of swearing to pubic hair, satanic panic, cults, there is nothing off limits. We'll be bed hopping around different time periods, from ancient civilizations to the Middle Ages to Renaissance and early modern, right up to now. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. This is After Dark. Myths, misdeeds and the paranormal. The podcast that takes you to the shadiest corners of the past, unpicking history's spookiest, strangest and most sinister stories. I'm Maddie Pelling. And I'm Anthony Delaney. Join us every Monday and Thursday and we'll take a look at the darker side of history from haunted pubs to Houdini to witch trials and arsenic-laced breakfasts. Follow After Dark, Myths, Misdeeds and the Paranormal wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by History Hit. scene that you've just described. It gives us a real sense of that kind of negotiation between the two of them. So when she died after a reign of 32 years, is that right? She was followed by six further queens. In your work, you describe queenship becoming institutionalised. How did it come about that women became the rulers in this institutionalised form in Patani? 
for one thing, it's a coincidence that you don't have any male contenders to the throne. So, mm-hmm. so you have these three sisters who managed to live for quite long. And I think also, as I said, that they conducted quite trade-friendly and open policies that were quite successful and kept most of the influential people at least happy in the country. So I think that was part of the institutionalization. I mean, we should remember also that this is a long period. It's more than 100 years. I would say that there are two instances of institutionalization. So we have the first instance with the four color queens until the mid-17th century. And then it seems that we have a period where we have a king or kings from around 1651 to around 1670. And then queenship is again taken up. Probably referring back to what then, because at this time, Patani is in decline. The trade has largely left and Europeans, particularly the Dutch East India Company, has started to marginalize Southeast Asian traders and producers. So Patani is in decline at this time. And the queenship is probably meant to refer back to this golden age where Patani was much more successful. And again, also to create some sort of dynastic or political stability. And from the beginning, this is a dynastic system, which then is abandoned towards the end of the 17th century in favor of electing queens. Because, of course, if the queens don't marry and they are supposed to be chaste, they will not produce an offspring. So that would create a dynastic problem. And then it is decided to elect the queen. And how long does that election of queens go on for? That's a fascinating idea. It's not more than for a couple of decades, as far as we can tell. And, and this period of queenship comes to an end in the early 18th century. So if the first four queens, inland queens, were thought of as a kind of golden age, what do the sources remember each of those queens for? Well, it's interesting, we take the chronicle of Patani, that there's virtually no mention in this chronicle of Europeans in Patani. And of course, I mean, the writer or writers of the chronicle must have been aware of the European presence even in those days. But it simply is not seen as relevant. So what they are remembered for is Raja Ejao, for example. She is remembered for overseeing the digging of a canal. So it's a major canal which she digs. Ejao is remembered as the Pahang queen because of her marriage to the king of Pahang. And I understand that the third queen, forgive my pronunciation, Raja Ungu, was involved in military crisis. Is this another moment where there's a contention of her throne or was this actually more to do with her foreign relations? I think Raja Ungu is very interesting because she is one of the few examples in world history of what seems to be an absolutist queen. She did have the support of her first minister, as far as we can tell from the sources, but I think it's quite clear that she was in charge of foreign policy and she was very strongly anti-Siamese, anti-Thai monarchy, and also embarked on a policy of war-making against Thailand. And this was apparently not popular with the merchant aristocrats of the country. But there's a fascinating account by a Dutch envoy who travels to Patani in the 1630s, carrying a letter from the governor general in Batavia of the Dutch East India Company, asking the queen to make peace with Siam. And this envoy relates how this letter is read in this audience hall with the queen and all her influential people in the country. And after the reading is done, she answers in very straightforward words, just rejecting this proposal to make peace with the king of Siam and also calling him, I think, a murderer and a rascal and other things. This seems like there's a real tension here. On the one hand, you've talked about Raja Angu as an absolutist queen, which is 
as you say, almost unique, if not entirely unique in world history. And yet it does seem like the queens are very dependent on the support of the Orankaya, the merchant aristocrats. And there could be an argument that they are a figurehead and the Orankaya are deciding who can stay and who can go. I think definitely not. And I think in the case of Raja Ungo, it's quite clear that she was very influential. I think there might also be, with the earlier queens, Raja Ijao and Raja Biru, I think they were more conciliatory. So I think they did take the advice from the Orankayas and influential people in the country. But I don't think that means that they were mere figureheads. And also when we read the European accounts of how Dutch and English traders come to Patani, they deal directly with the Queen because the Queen is also a very influential merchant and also makes a lot of profit from the trade. And they need to have the permission from the Queen to trade. And the Queen also lends money to Europeans for them to be able to buy their goods against interest. So I think it's quite clear that they were involved directly in the running of the country. In the case of Raja Ungu, it's very clear that she was very much directing the foreign policy and the war against Siam herself. Her successor was the one who ended that dynasty of inland queens. Was she considered weak by comparison to Raja Ungu or were the challenges that she faced that would have ousted any early modern monarch? It seems that her position from the outstart was much weaker, according to the Ikayat Patani. Just a few days after she ascended to the throne, she gave away her private or her dynasty's private fortune, which was quite substantial because of the profits that they had made in trade in the previous decades. So she gave that away and turned that into state property, which would have weakened her position enormously. And then, according to the Chronicle, she also lived off the produce of her own gardens and her fields. So she lived off the produce of the land rather than the trade, which one can assume was much less profitable. Then, of course, there was also the problem of Raja Kuning, the fourth queen, being married to the king of Johor. And then it's unclear what happened if she divorced the king of Johor and then married his brother, or if the brother of her husband forced himself on the queen. But in any case, according to the Chronicle, her husband installed himself as the king of Patani and also brought with him a following of Achenese men who took control of the country. And this is really interesting because at around the same time or a bit earlier in Europe, we have this discussion of the merits and, and the pitfalls of female rulership. And that is precisely one of the things that Jean Baudin, for example, a French thinker in the 16th century, he warns of that one of the big problems with having a woman on the throne is if she marries or if the throne is usurped by a man who will then take over the dynasty and actually then end the sovereignty of the country. And that is precisely what seems to be happening in Patani around the mid-17th century. And eventually the Orankayas, or the men of Patani, the influential men of Patani, they get together and oust this usurper. So they do get rid of the Johor dynasty. I'm also struck by the fact that the mid-17th century is a time of tumult in quite a lot of places around the world, <laughs> for whatever reason. Maybe it was the weather, which of course was famously bad, at least in Europe. So when we get the Kalantan dynasty of queens after that sort of 20 or so years of male rulership, are they as powerful as the inland queens had been? No, then you, I think you can talk about figurehead queens and it seems that they are put on the throne and, and don't exercise any real power and just enjoying the sort of the splendours of royalty. One interesting thing is that I haven't been able to find any art 
or portraiture from Patani of its queens. I found a Dutch engraving from 1602 that shows a procession of Raja Ijar. But apart from that, nothing else. Are the things that I just haven't found or is there a reason why these things do not exist? I think you're referring to the same engraving that I've been able to find, the, the one uh, with the procession with elephants. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is a beautiful picture, by the way. But I think that they're not surviving images. And I think this is not only for Patani. I think it's very unusual to have portraits of rulers in this early period. I mean, there are, of course, European drawings and so on of people in the region, but generally not of rulers. Oh, that's interesting, because, of course... You know, in India, we've got an incredible production of art in this period of time. Do we know if anything about the arts generally in the reigns of the Patani queens, though, things like music and drama and dance? And do we know if the queens were investing in that sort of culture? Yeah, I think there are some sources that talk of Raja Ijao, especially sponsoring arts and crafts and Patani also becoming a, a regional centre for the production of metal works and, and also for dances and for music and so on. So there are some indications in that. And then I think if we should be able to find out more about this, I think it's through archaeological finds to the extent that these have been preserved. Yes, that would be interesting to see what can be found. So how do we explain the end of the dynasty? If we're operating in a culture that is more equal between men and women than we see in contemporary Europe, and that female rule has been fairly easily accepted over this period of time, why does it come to an end? Well, I think in general, there is always a preference for male ruler. So I think these are quite exceptional circumstances. What we need to explain is, I think, the longevity of female rule. Why it happened at all, not why it stopped. (laughs) And then, of course, also Patani goes into a period of decline from the mid-17th century that also continues throughout the 18th century. And then uh, towards the end of the 18th century, it comes under Thai rule. So it's largely about its kind of economic power and its position in terms of trade as well that's upholding the rule of these queens that isn't present later. Yes, the origins of Patani is, is quite also steeped in, in mystery. It seems that it has grown from a village and then the trade grows and it turns into a, a rather prosperous city-state eventually. And then, of course, when the trade declines, and I think this, some of these Chinese visitors towards the end of the 17th century, they say it's a very small ramshackle village, really, and the harbour is not good and it's all muddy and so on. So you really get this sense of decline in, in the city. And this is not something that's particular only for Patani, because this is also a general trend in the 17th century and from around 1630, 1650s, somewhere, the Dutch particularly advances lead to a decline in the indigenous states and the indigenous trade in the region. How does that decline work? Could you describe to me what the effect of the Dutch is on those indigenous people? Well, the Dutch have a policy of rather monopolistic trade policy where they try to gain control not only of the trade, but also the production of spices, which is the main commodity from this region. So they are trying to set the prices and also to take control over most of the the actual trade. And that is something, of course, that they do by means of their superior weapons and their large ships equipped with cannons and firearms. I mean, I say we're just talking about colonialism, really, aren't we? (laughs) And I should say that the English are there as well. But I mean, the Dutch are the more successful over the long run in the 17th century and also managed to outmaneuver both the Portuguese and the English from the region. What then is the legacy of the Queens of Patani, both immediately and in the longer term? 
I think in the present, I think it's an interesting example of, you know, what I would call an institutionalized female leadership, which we don't have so many examples of in world history. We have some 10, maybe a dozen examples of it. So in that sense, it's, it's very interesting. And I think a lot more people have become interested in that, not only in Southeast Asia, but in Europe and in global history in general. So I think that's part of the legacy. Then, of course, the history of Patani in general is something that's very contentious at the moment because of the position of Patani as a part of Thailand and the secessionist movement in Patani. But it's not necessarily celebrating the female rulership as such because of the strongly Islamic tendencies in the Patani secessionist movement, especially in recent years. Yes, yeah, so it's a somewhat contested history. Finally, given that you are a professor of global history and that your research interests have led you to explore in the four corners of the world and reflecting what you've just said, how has your work on the Queens of Patani shaped your thoughts about female political leadership in world history? I think the comparisons are very interesting and, and also to the extent that you can find connections that different polities, perhaps in different parts of the world, influence one another. There is, for example, a science that Aceh, which I mentioned here earlier, was influenced by English envoys talking about the golden age and rule of Elizabeth I in England. So I think these are very interesting connections. And I think it's also interesting to see the similarities, but also the differences to the extent to which female rule is thinkable and possible in different cultures. And we find in global history cultures that have no female leaders or virtually no female leaders, just perhaps one in several hundred years, China, for example, whereas in other cultures in Europe, for example, but also in, in Southeast Asia and also in parts of South Asia, we have several ruling queens where it seems that to put a woman on the throne is something that is possible to do, generally as a last resort, but still possible. And that, of course, makes the dynasties more flexible because that is a way of dealing with the problem of not having a male heir to the throne. Yes, yeah, so women help the dynasty survive <laughs> in the end. Yes, you can say that. Well, thank you so much for introducing me to a period I knew nothing about before I came across your work and which is little known, I suspect, among the general public. So thank you for letting us into this very special history of the reigning queens of Malay. Thank you very much. It's my pleasure. Thank you to my producer, Rob Weinberg, and researcher, Esther Arnott. And thank you to you for listening to Not Just the Tudors from History Hit. If you haven't already done so, do sign up to our weekly newsletter, Tudor Tuesday, so that you never miss out on the history you love. There are details in the notes below this podcast. And please rate this podcast wherever you listen, now including on Spotify, and please send me your comments and suggestions for future podcasts via our Twitter feed at NotJustTudors or by email NotJustTheTudors at HistoryHit.com. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. 
In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built, a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age, a house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.